0: back to Living on a Changing Planet. My name is Carter Powis. I'm a climate scientist and economist from Toronto, Canada, and I am joined today, as always, by my co-host Patrick, who is a clinical psychologist from Oxford, England. Patrick,
1: how are you doing? Hello. Very well, thank you. Yes. Yes, yourself?
0: I have had a bit of a day, if I'm being honest with you. You helped deliver a baby today. <laughs> Uh, let's not overstate my role. I went to the hospital to visit someone who had just given birth. Uh, being a climate scientist does not qualify you to help in the delivery of, <laughs> of babies. Uh, thank God. <laughs> Do you want to introduce
1: our guests for today? Yes, absolutely delighted to be speaking with these two today. First guest is Professor Mark Maslin, who is Professor of Earth System Science at UCL in London. Among his Many accolades um, are two popular books, The Climate Change, A Very Short Introduction, and more recently, How to Save Our Planet, The Facts," which is one of my absolute favourites. And we also have, as a first on Living on a Changing Planet, we have a double double guests, two at the same time. We've also got Dr. Matt Winning, who's a London-based Scottish comedian and environmental economist who performs live climate change comedy, which is, which is a thing, and I can't wait to hear... Uh, all about that from from Matt. Um, so, and I hope we have to kind of put our hands up today and say this is, we probably title this episode Four White Men Having a Conversation. We are not ticking very many, uh, very many, uh, <laughs> as many of the boxes as we'd like, but um, we're thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to have you both here. So Matt and Mark, welcome.
2: I mean, if you're going to get white guys on a podcast, you might as well get two on at the same time and be done with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. on <laughs> to us.
0: Let's let's start with an open question to both of you. The same question we try and start all of our episodes with. How did you first learn about climate change? And what was that experience like
3: for you? So I'm of an age where when I was doing my PhD, which was on the great ice ages and what was causing them, um, the whole idea of climate change was just starting to build up. We had the first IPCC report and... I feel that I'm like that frog in the water. You know, sort of like I started off in the water. We were talking about climate change and global warming, and the water was relatively cool. And, you know, Margaret Thatcher said to the world in 89, we can deal with this. We can do it. We can change, you know. And so therefore the water was okay. So I wasn't panicking. And then we go through sort of like the 1990s and sort of like we keep talking. We have some sort of like international agreements, etc. cetera. So the water's heating up a bit and I'm feeling a bit more nervous and a bit more upset, particularly having to deal with a lot of climate deniers. Uh, we get into the 2000s and, yeah, the water's getting a bit hot. <laughs> and I'm starting to build up some anxiety. And it's early 2000 where Oxford University Press approached me I'm still looking at a lot of paleoclimate, the old stuff. And they say, look, we need someone to write an introduction to global warming. And they wanted something different. They didn't just want the science. They wanted the history behind the science. They wanted the science. They also wanted a little bit about the politics and solutions. So I sat down to write that book. And that suddenly was the moment I started getting worried. And I think what's really worrying is... The one that sort of Patrick kindly uh, talked about is the fourth edition. So I have got through four editions of this book and we still haven't solved it. So, key, okay, that's when I'm starting to get anxious and go, okay, guys, I've been telling you how to do it. Here's the little red book, you know. And, again, I think that's something that we are now getting to that point where our voices are getting shriller, so are the youth movement because – we have been drifting. The water for the frog has been heating up and we're now at boiling point and nothing's happening fast enough. Matt, over to you. Well,
2: yeah, I mean, for most of that time, I was a child. <laughs> uh, just out playing, kicking a kicking a ball, having the time of my life. Um, really not worried about anything at all. And unlike children, you know, today I grew up in the 90s when, you know, Nobody, nobody worried about anything in the 90s. <laughs> it's true. Very different time. Um, so I had an idyllic childhood, and then I went to university, and I found university, most classes, I was very aware that I was in a class, and, you know, bored, essentially. And in my final year at university, I did an international environmental law course. Now, I have to be clear here, because when... When I say the word "law" in my accent, it's not the way most British people say it. it's very Scottish, and a lot of people hear me saying the word "war" rather than "law." Um, but you know, Patrick's got the good RP accent. You can go, you can, you know, you can, you can just overdub this if, if people can't get it. Anyway, point is, I did a law course, uh, really enjoyed it, and we talked about the Kyoto Protocol and various parts of that. And I was. Absolutely fascinated, and didn't notice that I was in a class for three hours, and was just really um, taken aback by this. And that was the very first time that I came across climate change, and that would have been around two thousand and five, probably. Um, and from there, um, I guess that that was the sort of time where it was becoming more and more into the public consciousness. And over the kind of, I guess, the next couple of years, I went from, you know, having not really uh, heard of climate change at all to then going three years later, starting a PhD um, in that in that topic because it sort of became more and more and more part of my consciousness and so much so that I thought, well, I'm happy to spend my try- time trying to solve this. Um, yeah, and I, I gave up a career in investment banking, a very short career in investment banking to work on climate change. Uh, and, and I've been doing so for the last, I guess, what's that now, you know, 12, 13 years now. How have your feelings changed over that
0: time I imagine they must they must have evolved how do you feel about climate change now versus
2: sometimes really optimistic and sometimes the exact opposite it really comes and goes in waves and you try to sort of stabilize yourself a bit more now I think um you know when I when I started working on it I was so passionate and then Copenhagen happened straight after that and then I felt like I dropped right down and was sort of almost lost interest I'd, I'd say for a even during my PhD Um, and then it sort of came back again and then with Paris um, and everything, you know, it was much more an upturn and then slightly down again and up again. And I think you have to find different um, uh, when you work in the area, especially, you do have to find different aspects that you you, you enjoy working on and and other things to keep you interested uh, as well. Um, And I say interested, sorry, to keep your motivation up uh, as such there's always of always an interest, but sometimes you can you can get quite uh, dispirited, I guess, as Mark was alluding to. Um, so it really is this constant up and down uh, journey. okay, you've both mentioned
0: that you go through or have gone through periods of climate anxiety. Is your anxiety based around the thought that we might not get our act together in time to prevent climate change from becoming a catastrophe? Or is it based around the idea that there might be something pernicious in the climate system which causes a feedback runaway warming effect which would take climate change completely out of our control, make it an unsolvable problem and and you know sterilize the the surface of the planet? The reason I ask this question is when you interact sometimes with climate activists or read news coverage of climate change, you come across this narrative that if we don't hit a particular warming target, we run the risk of causing a runaway warming effect, which would be absolutely disastrous. We talked about this a little bit in a previous episode with Miles Allen, who I know you both know. Um, but Mark, I, I particularly wanted to get your perspective because with miles, we talked about what we know about feedback loops from the perspective of computerized climate models, but you have done quite a bit of work in a totally separate field, paleoclimatology. So for our listeners, not familiar with that term, the study of Earth's climatological history, and you've looked at paleoclimate evidence to see if there is evidence in earth's past of feedback loops or runaway warming happening at other periods um, in geological history. So I would, I'm just really interested to hear what you learned from Earth's climate history that is relevant to our future, and, and if and how that inspires what you worry about.
3: So I would say that my anxiety is mainly about the human condition, and it's mainly about the inability of 195 countries to actually solve a simple pollution issue Um, because of lobbyists, because of uh, invested interests, you know, sort of there are problems there. And I think it's really interesting how there is this extreme view of climate. And I think a lot of us work tirelessly with the media, with the public, on Twitter, you know, on social media to try and actually counter this doom sort of like type uh, approach. So the climate system is relatively uh, easy to predict. We can actually have these wonderful models, and yeah, there are some things that accelerate or decelerate the climate change. So I'll give you an example. In the 1980s, uh, sort of, we were all worried that sort of the Gulf Stream, uh, the hot water coming up past Europe uh, from Florida, was suddenly going to switch off, and we were going to have this sort of like cold snap uh, that was going to happen in Europe and then all this mega changes. We've now done all the science over the last sort of like uh, 20 to 30 years and we find that the chances of that happening are incredibly small. So tick, I'm sorry, the day after tomorrow, the film is not going to happen. And then the new one, which I've been studying for the last sort of 20-odd years, is gas hydrates, methane, burps of death, hiding in the ocean and hiding in the Arctic. Now, of course, methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas, and we know there's a lot stored in the actual sort of like uh, seabed and also in the permafrost. But if we look at the science, the stuff in the ocean, guess what? We're increasing uh, sea level, so that pressurizes it. The temperature is really slowly getting into the sediment, so actually they're stabilizing. The ones in the Arctic, yes, there is a major problem. However... As those release, even if we take the worst-case scenario, we're only seeing a small increase in the temperature, which could be really easily offset by us decarbonizing even quicker. So I think that what we have to do is step back and say, these disaster movies, these ideas of massive feedbacks are suddenly going to change the planet. We don't have examples in the past of those Unless you have something catastrophic, which is either a meteorite or a huge set of underground uh, volcanoes erupting and burping huge amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So I think we can be reassured that climate will be roughly within the bounds that we put it. And it's a very simple equation. We emit more carbon into the atmosphere, it gets hotter. If we actually emit less, it won't get so hot. And I'm a real fan of Greta Thornburg's reply when people go, well, what happens if we miss the one and a half degree target? She then says, well, we'll try to aim for 1.6. We'll try to aim for 1.7. We'll aim for two. Because she knows from the scientists that every amount of warming that we prevent will have a significant effect on limiting the impact of climate change.
0: It's such an important point and it's one that we've talked about before several times on this podcast, but I think it bears repeating because I always worry that when we have these discussions that debunk some of the climate doomist narratives that have become so popular that we're going to be accused of downplaying the importance of climate change, which of course is not, <laughs> it's not at all the intent of this podcast. I think it's really important to emphasize that you don't need feedback loops and runaway warming in order for climate change to be the defining problem of our generation. For two reasons. One, we already know, as we've talked about, for example, in the episode with Spencer Glendon, that society is likely very vulnerable to even just moderate amounts of warming. And two, we don't know with certainty what, how sensitive our planet is to greenhouse gases. We've managed to narrow the range of possible outcomes, but it's possible that we could get substantially more warming than we currently expect without having to invoke feedback loops or tipping points or runaway warming at all. It could just turn out that our planet is more sensitive to greenhouse gases than we think. But if that is the case, the important point is the solution remains 100% within our control. We just stop emitting greenhouse gases and the warming stops. And I think it's really important that we make sure that what we worry about is is based in fact so that we remember that this is a solvable problem. Because painting it as an unsolvable problem does not help (laughs) inspire people to take action. So Mark, I really appreciate you walking us through what the paleoclimate record does and and does not support um Matt I'm sorry for this diatribe I would really love to hear your answer as well
2: I think my main concerns are are, are much more on the uh, element of us trying to fix something now as quickly as possible and not and not doing it Miss, missing up the missed opportunities and the the the, the time that's passing is is what really annoys me. And it's, it's more frustration. I'd say what I mostly feel was frustration. Um and and it, it, it's the lack of long-term commitment to solving these issues, um, and a lack of foresight and a and a playing to the short-termism that really, that really frustrates me. And it's not even short-termism. Previously, we could talk about short-termism. You know, people would be like, oh, what about our grandchildren or whatever, you know, hypothetical children in the future. We're not talking about them anymore. I'm talking about my son that was born two years ago. You know, th- these are real people, you know, that are alive now that are being affected by this. This isn't all hypothetical stuff anymore. You know, the majority of people that are being affected by climate change are here, and or you know, are being born today, are being delivered by Carter. <laughs> so you know, it, it's it's a case of stopping with this hypotheticalness. You know, stopping with the the it's always someone else, somewhere else language because it's not.
1: <laughs> no, no, I think you're 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 on to something, and it, you know, this is. We've spoken to people in, the, in this series who are invo- involved in, you know, sustainability or who are sort of fighting the climate crisis in one, one sh- way, shape or form, whether it's climate scientists or uh, climate focused psychologists or activists, etc. And it, it's off, it, you know, it's often that frustration that people talk about, you know, some people who have been doing this for, for decades or some people who are relatively new to, to, to this area, but still finding this sense of frustration, you know, because we're you know, science communicators who are, who are really sort of banging their heads against the wall, saying, "Come on, guys! What you know? Why aren't we Why aren't we shifting quickly enough?" And that I think that's probably something that we've heard in terms of what drives people's distress. You know, in, in regards to the climate crisis, so that's that's the word that we hear a lot. And you, Matt, I know you you talk about the arrival of your son so so beautifully in Hot Mess, um, and you mentioned sort of how that potentially takes it from a hypothetical to a real you know um this is now two two years down the line you said your son's two how what, what what's this journey been like for you these past two years and how are you with with it with everything now this kind of this tangible you know little dude who's also the sort of representation of the future and what it holds
2: yeah yeah so yeah so i wrote i wrote a book a comedy book about climate change that also talks about becoming a, a new dad uh and and what that means in the context of climate change and almost uh, you know the, the the book sort of talks about these two parts of my psyche wrestling with each other which are the sort of the climate researcher pragmatist and the new dad terrified of everything doesn't know what he's doing um matt winning um and those two parts of me yeah are are slowly beginning to uh, find a rhythm together <laughs> um it's very ha- it's very hard you know what one thing i think is is it's so difficult for people to 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 make space or to have the headspace to really think about the issue and to deal with the issue in their own heads because i struggle with it and i know all of this and i know what i'm dealing with um but then you become a parent and and especially those i think the first few years are so you have to be in the moment constantly. You're constantly having to be attuned to what is happening at that exact day to get through that day, to get through that time. That, that Anything that requires you to think about the future and to think about other things, very difficult to do. And i found that that's the thing. Trying to be uh, positive on climate change and trying to do even if it's you know from a personal capacity trying to do green stuff for instance is very difficult when you're when you're in that that space and and, and it makes me aware of how much it, how important it is to make choices easy for people to make um because you only have small windows of time small you know opportunities to do the right thing to do the, the positive things or to, to spend time thinking about the issue or to engage with it in a way. So, you know, we really, while it's great to have, you know, lots of uh, s- stuff for, for people to to really engage in the topic if they want to and to delve right into it, you know, deep dive, we also really need to make things much easier for people who don't have that capacity, who, you know, want to know in 10 seconds what the best thing they should be eating is or whatever you know the we need to make this just you know uh easy for 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 people people's lives um so there's there's that aspect of it and then also i guess it, it is it does make it so much more uh real um i guess when you do have a child you do feel much more um part of the world part of nature part of Uh, everything and how it's connected and worrying. You know, I I talked recently about, also the systemic issues are really difficult as well. I talked about how we moved uh, to the countryside when my son was born and I wanted him to live in the countryside because I didn't want him to, you know, have asthma from car pollution. But because we moved to the countryside, we had to buy a car because we can't, Drive anywhere because we can't get around anywhere. So you've got these weird societal contradictions where you're trying to solve one problem and you're creating another one. Um, yeah, it's stuff. It's fascinating. It is really fascinating. So um, I'm still sort of getting to grips with it all. Um, I've just been violently ill for a week, and we've basically just got through some vomiting disease. And so that, that's been that's been my life. I've I've not really the climate could, the world could be ending outside and we were just sort of inside as close to the bathroom as possible, changing, uh, I think I was sick while changing his nappy the other day. So, you know, that's, that's my like, very visceral yeah, exactly. things. Well, I think that's, that's what's happening with me. I think that
0: mental image is uh, the perfect segue into my next question, which is, One of the things we really wanted to talk about in this series is the usefulness of humor in dealing with difficult topics, difficult experiences, difficulty in general. Uh, I'd, I'd love to know how you got involved in comedy, particularly in doing comedy about climate change and what you get out of that, if anything, in terms of your own mental health benefits of
2: your for your own mental health so so to explain this as succinctly as I possibly can, I started doing comedy the year I started working on my PhD on climate change as a way to and I talk about this a bit in the book, but basically to get out of the house every night and to not think about climate change and to not think about how awful my life was at that point in time in my mid-20s. Um and so I started doing comedy, and 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 it sort of snowballed so much so that I went from doing something which was a hobby, kind of for myself, and it's now a sort of other career <laughs> uh, that takes up all. all. It's, I mean, ninety percent of comedy is admin. It's really not that exciting, guys. Um, but uh, and there you go. There's the there's the pessimist coming out in me. Um, But yeah, so I started doing comedy in 2009, and in 2017, I decided to try to do comedy about climate change, and I decided I was going to write an hour show about climate change kind of come hell or high water, which is uh, a very apt description of climate change. Um, But yes, I decided I was going to do that um, and, and committed to it, and it took me about a year to work out how to not be terrible at at that specifically um and then I realized it was actually quite a good tool and it took me about um two weeks of of doing this festival um in twenty seventeen and after about two weeks of, of of it I started realizing that people were coming up to me and saying, Oh, this is actually like you know people that have no interest in climate change, no background whatsoever saying. Oh that was I really enjoyed that and i and it was inter- and I learned something oh it was interesting and kept getting that feedback again and again and again, and I went, well, there must be something in this i i i hadn't really known what to 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 expect from it, and I guess I slowly realized that there was something there from um a number of perspectives, firstly, probably from an educational perspective, so we all learn a lot more from yeah, when we enjoy ourselves, essentially. I think, psych, I don't know, you, you. other people will be able to tell me this better, but as far as I'm aware, when you're sti- you know stimulating positive parts of your brain, you're a lot more likely to retain information, to associate positive feelings with all that sort of thing. Pay attention. I think there's something about comedy as well. For me, you're also in a room with lots of other people, so you don't want to miss out on a joke. There's probably a social aspect there where you're like, I don't want to be the idiot here that doesn't get the joke, so I'm going to have to pay attention to this. So there's, I think there's just a lot of things that coalesce around comedy that actually make it really good to talk about difficult subjects. Um, there's a balance, obviously, to be struck with what you talk about and and how how certain subjects are approached and all that sort of stuff then there's also a coping aspect now I think the coping aspect not necessarily for me because I'm the you know the person pulling the strings standing at the front it's not like I get a coping out of it but I do find that people who work in environmental issues often come along and can enjoy themselves um, and, and see things in a different way probably see things much more in a, in the way that the public sees climate change um, I always joke, half joke, half accurate. Uh, accurate that um, the worst audience members by far are people that work for environmental charities, uh, because they tend to just um, stare at the charts rather than laugh. Everyone else in the room is laughing at the jokes, and they're just looking at like the axis that's been used and whether it's the right axis. Um, I, and and so there's there's this thing where I think it's you know, and some people are, some people then are able to sort of check themselves and go, yeah, I I do do that. And then sit back and go, well, yeah, sit in a room with normal people and enjoy something in a different way rather than feeling really anxious about it. But there's definitely a small group of people, certainly, that find it really difficult to relax or to see things the way other people see it or to even joke about these subjects because they just, I guess, they you will be able to tell me much better than I can say, but I have to make judgments about them that that maybe they're so sort of so part of who they are as a person that they're unable to 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 remove themselves or other anxieties from it. But the people that do do that, I think, massively benefit from it as well and are able to cope. So there's these sorts of like education educating people that don't care about climate change, but also hopefully helping some people that do care about it to to cope a bit. And then there's me on a personal level. Now, I don't get either of those things from it. What I think I get is that I'm achieving both of those things and therefore it feels like I'm taking action from it. So I'm doing something that's got a unique skill set that's helping other people to do things. And I think that's what I get out of it personally. And I get a lot of self- satisfaction because I guess it is something that not, not either nobody or very few other people in the world are doing and I think has a benefit. So I feel like, you know, I can go home afterwards and and go, well, it, there was a purpose to that. You know, I felt like I've done something positive. And, and that was the the difficulty I always had when performing comedy for like almost a decade before that was I enjoyed it for myself. I got a lot out of it, but I didn't really, I, I worried that it, it it was very self indulgent which i think performing comedy is quite self indulgent um because you're you're going up and you're saying well my views are much more important than everyone else's and everyone in this room should be listening to me and and you know i enjoy that and i still enjoy being stupid and and making people laugh and all that sort of stuff but but there was i guess there was a bit of um something missing there from from a you know what's the purpose of of that um, and now I feel like I've maybe sort of filled that part of my uh, persona as well. So I'm pretty happy. I just, I don't have enough time in the day to to do that. Um, on top of my job. That's the main thing. I want to go back
0: to something we were talking about maybe 15 minutes ago with Mark. Um, Mark, we talked about this idea that Solving climate change is completely within our power, as far as we understand from a scientific perspective. There's no imminent risk of a runaway warming effect, which will mean that we cannot directly control our influence on temperature. If that is true, what would you say to someone who says, well, in that case, why do we need to worry about taking action? Can't we just stop whenever... Things start to get bad. Like, why don't we just keep doing what we're doing? And then, when things become unacceptable, well, then then we'll stop. Um, yeah what, what would you okay. What would you say to that um, that
3: person? So for me, the frustration, and I think this is what comes out with Matt as well, is that we know we have all the scientists that we need. We know all about climate change. We know what causes it. We have all the technologies to move away from fossil fuels. We have all the business leaders that could actually do it very quickly. We have all the entrepreneurs. What we don't have is the policies that actually encourage and improve and develop the low-carbon economy. And we don't have politicians at the moment who have that vision of that world. And I think what frustrates me uh, is that so many people now are writing about a net zero world, which they can see if we do it in the right way, people will be safer, healthier, wealthier, and I hate to step on Patrick's toes, maybe even a little bit happier, you know, in this world where in 2050. We're going to have 10 billion people and hopefully we will have lifted most of them out of poverty. And the key thing is when we deal with climate change and we deal with the other issues around the world, which is environmental degradation, global poverty and, of course, global security, we have to remember one fact. And this is the fact that always makes me depressed is we need to do this for everyone not just those who are in a privileged position in rich countries or rich in poor countries. We need to actually change the systems, prevent climate change, improve the environment for everyone. And that's the bit that makes me lose sleep at night.
2: I I think, sorry to come in and sort of jump on this question as well, but, you know, when you said, there, Carter, that if if we, uh, you know, when things get bad, we'll just stop. We've got that in our ability. Now, I had a, a, a five fillings in my teeth the other week, right? Because I, I, again, COVID, didn't have a dent, moved house during COVID, didn't have a dentist, had a baby. Basically, I mean, I brushed my teeth, but I didn't pay attention to it or care about it for a few years and then all of a sudden i had to have my face drilled for about <laughs> three hours straight now that to me is climate change right because sure i can fix it i can just get a bunch of fillings but would i have preferred to have just spent an extra minute a day brushing my teeth a little bit better for a year and it would have been about probably about the same time. Yes, I would rather have had my own teeth. So in answer to your question, what I would say is I'd rather have my own teeth. And that's solving climate change. Is that a good analogy? Sorry.
0: it's um, I, You could not have picked a more Scottish
2: analogy to, to finish our episode with. <laughs> And that's and that's just the teeth that I kept during bar you know bar fights and stuff like that. That's just the ones that I've still got.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right, um, <laughs> Matt. I have one last question for you before we go, which is: <laughs> if people want to yes. find find your stuff, if they want to listen to your comedy, they want to know more, where can they go?
2: Absolutely. Um, so you can uh, buy my book or listen to it on Audible, uh, which is hot mess. What on earth can we do about climate change? Uh, I have a show on YouTube, but I've hidden it privately at the moment. But if you want it, just send me a message and I'll give you a link to it. Uh, I'll probably put it back up. Uh, And I'm touring around the UK at the moment. And I'm doing uh, 12 days at the Edinburgh Festival in August as well. And then I'll probably be touring some dates next year. So it depends. If you want live stuff, um, there's lots coming up. If you want stuff online, uh, which most of you will, then um, yeah, have a little search and um, maybe I'll put this uh, show back up on online so people can see it. Um, yeah, and that's a, that's a, I'll be doing more stuff. There'll be more online stuff. That's the problem is I'm that age where I'm I'm not young enough to be like a natural YouTuber, and I'm not Mark's age where I'm you know unable to know what YouTube is. I'm sort of in the middle where uh, I I should have more of a presence but don't and there you go I've, I've finished by insulting Mark which is back to our well, usual the thing down. was
3: I was literally going to jump in there and tell everybody sort of like how amazing your book is and how funny it was <laughs> and actually took me <laughs> back to actually trying to raise my two daughters and uh, and there were a lot of vomit stories as well Um. so yeah I'm not going to do that now I'm, yeah book rubbish. <laughs>
2: Fair enough. Don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, Matt,
0: thank you both so much for joining us today. It was a real <laughs> pleasure having you on the show. Pleasure. Absolute
2: pleasure. Absolute pleasure.
0: Alright, episode 8. Mark and Matt. It was a fun episode. I think a really great opportunity to speak about the efficacy and role of humor in dealing with difficult things. Patrick, I'm not sure that I have much intelligent to say on this topic other than to note anecdotally that I get in trouble a lot for making jokes at (laughs) uh, ostensibly inappropriate times. But I find jokes to be just such a wonderful stress reliever. I think as humans, we're predisposed to build up whatever problem we're currently facing to be something larger than it is and something more personalized to our own fears than it is. And laughing at it helps give you objectivity, I think. remind Give yourself some distance from the problem. I'm curious... To hear the clinician's perspective, does that
1: make sense? Yeah, and and there's you know a fair amount of literature out there looking at humor as a coping strategy. Is that um, is that literature funny? <laughs> no,
0: <okay. laughs> it seems like a wasted opportunity.
1: They have, not. They, I know they have to have a disclaimer, right? Do, this is not when we're not talk, we're not we're not describing the humor. We're just describing the. <laughs> the person's use of humor i
0: think it should be a requirement if you're writing a paper on humor you should have to write the paper so that it makes the reader
1: laugh yeah, it's in comic sense, well. <laughs> and so that it's written in comic sense. yeah that's right so i mean and there, there are certain communities right like um firefighters are known for kind of gallows humor you know like dark humor as a as a coping strategy and there's really good evidence for you know for how the fire service, particularly after sort of critical incidents or, or, um, you know, really distressing call outs will, will use humor as a, as a coping strategy. And after, and again, after trauma, there's, you know, good evidence that, that humor helps with kind of adaptive coping and sort of finding meaning in the new, in life following trauma and all of these kinds of things. And there's, I was, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole looking at the humor, <laughs> the humor literature on this. And there are some. Like styles of humor, let's say, so that are known to be more more um, beneficial than others. So, if you have a, a fairly kind of self assured humor style, or they seem to be more protective. Where if you have a kind of self effacing, if your humor rather than putting yourself down, apparently it's not doesn't have the same positive kind of effects in terms of coping and stress management. And uh, but I, I agree with you. You know, I think. You have to be able to laugh at, ev- at everything. It, but, you know, it's like Ricky Gervais says, it depends on who the who the butt of the joke is.
0: Right. He has that great speech about the difference between the subject and the object of a joke. So just because a joke is ostensibly about climate change, climate change is the topic, that doesn't mean that the joke is being made at the expense of climate change. Climate change is not necessarily the target of the joke. and It's a nuance that's just so often lost. I want to return to what you were saying about firefighters. In my experience, another community that leans very heavily on dark humor uh, as a coping strategy is the military.
1: Right, right, right.
0: And I think that dark humor has just some really interesting and amazing benefits. I think breaking a conversational taboo signals that you are willing to talk about a difficult subject, I think it removes some of the emotional power from that subject because what we fear the most is often the unknown. And by joking about something, you're moving it from a category that you cannot talk about, you cannot joke about to something that you can. I think physiologically laughing about something just chemically changes the way you feel about it in your body. And maybe most importantly, I think it makes you vulnerable because the other person or people could react really badly to your joke. It's a high risk coping strategy. And I think making yourself vulnerable is the first step to building trust with someone, which is absolutely necessary to discuss and cope with difficult things, but it also communicates that you're not going to be judgmental if they say yeah. something that might be perceived as embarrassing.
1: It reminds me of what, of what Brit said, you know, um, Brit, Brit Ray um, earlier in the season, he said, you know, you guys had that great conversation about um, how joy can still exist even in difficult circumstances. It's kind of, it, it kind of reminds me a lot of that as well. It's like, does a warming planet mean we can't find humor and, it almost becomes more important rather than, rather than less right. important. Right. There's no
0: reason that we can't continue to have fun and joke around in the midst of a climate crisis, as long as we continue to also take action on the crisis <laughs> as, as well. I have one last question for you to wrap up the episode. Okay, so oftentimes friends will act as informal therapists to each other. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Right? And
1: uh, I charge mine sometimes,
0: <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You... you... You have the benefit of charging yours occasionally. And sometimes when someone comes to you with a problem, have you ever found that because you have objectivity and they do not, you can immediately see the humor in the situation? And, you know, maybe you laugh and then have to apologize and say, oh, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at how ridiculous that situation that you found yourself in is. And, you know, if you could remove yourself from the situation, you would, you know, you would, you would laugh at it too. Has that ever happened? Does that ever happen in the therapy room? And if so, how do you, uh, how do you engage constructively with a patient if if that does happen?
1: Oh my goodness. I've never been asked that question before. <laughs> I have to think about that. I have...
0: <laughs> you, have, you have to think about what you can say on air is what you mean. No, no, no.
1: I have to, I have to wrap my...
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's start Honestly, outside of the therapy room. Do you identify with that scenario of having someone come to you with a problem personally and, and being able to see the humor in it that they can't?
1: Oh, of course. Oh, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. In therapy, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. I'm just, I have to like, it- <laughs> I have to go through right. my notes. Patrick
0: is a consummate professional who never feels the need to laugh at anything that comes up <laughs> in the therapy room, right? This is our, this is our official position. <laughs> Something like that. Okay, but I, I, <clears throat> really, I understand I think oftentimes when you take on a certain set of responsibilities or a position of responsibility, it can really change the way that you think even think and react to things like i I note that when I'm at work, for example, I will react to things very differently than I would if I had also been exposed to that situation in my in my personal life. so I totally understand how if you have, for example, a burden of care uh for someone, a professional burden of care that that might change the degree to which humor becomes a, a a coping mechanism for yourself.
1: Yeah. But, but saying that, like I was I've always found humor to be a really important part of therapy as well. Like laughing with people, um, in the, hopefully with people in the context, in the context of difficulty is, yeah, it, it, it can, it can lighten things, but you're right. (laughs) You, You have to be, of course you have to be careful. It's like you were saying, uh, at the top of the outro, that's what you said, right? Sometimes my timing gets me in trouble.
0: I think that is a great place to end the episode. For our regular listeners, I'm going to give you a quick overview of what is left in season one. So next week, we have a conversation with Dr. Susan Clayton, who is one of the founders of the field of climate psychology and an IPCC lead chapter author. After that, we're going to speak with Arizona Muse about all sorts of things, one of which is how to talk about climate change with children, which I'm very excited about. We then have a conversation with Dr. Don Wobbles, who is a very prominent climate scientist. Then we have our mystery guest, who I think we will announce next week, potentially the week after. And then finally, the season finale with Al Gore. After the season finale, we're going to have two longer form episodes. First, Patrick is going to interview me and we're going to talk about Climate Science 101. And then finally, I'm going to interview Patrick and we are going to do a wrap up of all of the mental health topics covered throughout the entire season. So with that said, I hope that you are excited for what's to come. Thank you so much for listening today, and we will see you next week. In the meantime, we're going to roll broccoli, and thank you to totally enormous extinct dinosaurs, as always, for letting us use his excellent music.